0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi.
1: Well, we put the tree through here, and it comes out here. We're netting around.
2: I'm gonna to try to get it real nice and tight on top of the car here.
0: That was Dew South producer Cole Del Charco at Circle C Tree Farm, recording the sounds of trimming, cutting, and harvesting trees at a Christmas tree farm in Boone, North Carolina. Did you know that North Carolina is the second largest Christmas tree producing state in the country? We're going to get deep rooted into those Fraser firs today. This hour, we'll hear from Amber Scott of Klein Church Nursery in Fleetwood, North Carolina about what it's like to send one of your Christmas trees to be put on display in the White House. Then, later, from an entrepreneur, activist, and bakery owner who delivers bread each Christmas tree harvesting season to shops in those mountainous communities. Leonida Inge talks with Manolo Bedanker about the connections that he's made to many of the migrant workers who help harvest Christmas trees. First, where the trees come from, prices, how the industry works, and, of course, Favorite ornament placement, that's a very important detail, with two people who work closely with Christmas tree growers in North Carolina. Dr. Jamie Bookwalter joins us from Asheville. She's a mountain conifer integrated pest management specialist with NC State Cooperative Extension Forestry. Hi, Jamie.
3: Hi, pleasure to be here.
0: And Dr. Jim Hamilton, Wataga County Extension Director with uh, the NC Cooperative Extension, also from NC State, joins us on the line from Boone. Dr. Jim Hamilton, welcome to Do South. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the invite. Glad you guys are here. Hopefully, we're going to have some fun chatting about Christmas trees. I, I want to just start with what the Christmas tree supply has been like this year. Jim, you want to take that one?
4: Well, the supply of, of trees over the, the last several years has been very, very tight. There's sort of a long macroeconomic history to the status of supply and demand in the in the industry. And Jamie, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but you know, a little over 20 years ago there was there were so many trees being planted that by the time the re- recession hit in you know really 08 through in, in the following years you know the changes in the in the economy and the high supply of trees at the time because you know christmas trees take anywhere from 10 to 15 years to get to the to the state that they're you know sold to, to put up in your house so it's a long process and sort of a couple storms collided in the early 2010s and um Several Christmas tree growers get out of the market more well, more than several. And uh, fewer trees were getting planted during that time, and fast forward into that growth cycle, six to ten years. and And uh-huh. there were fewer trees for more folks who were more economically capable to to spend the money and go for that Christmas tree again.
0: So let me jump in there and, and pick up on that thread. We are fortunate and privileged and have the economic uh, flexibility in our house to uh, have a house and then to have a Christmas tree uh, within our house. I was a little surprised this year to to find that our 7- to 8-foot tree was right at $100. Talk to me about prices, either this year or the last couple of years. How have sure. they risen, or, or am I just way off base on that?
4: Well, just like everything has risen, the, the, the cost of fertilizer has, you know, some areas, I think, quintupled. It's, it's very hard and more costly for labor. So the prices to grow that tree have increased over the years. So, so yeah, uh, sticker shock, you know, might be something that we're all used to with every product ac- uh, across the board. But, um, you know, frankly, you know, working with a lot of these Christmas tree growers, I'm happy for them that I think they're finally getting the price that they deserve for nurturing this, you know, this tree in the field from seedling all the way to, you know, a full size seven, eight, you know, 10 foot tree and visiting that tree year over year and checking it for pests and fertilizing it. And that's the, the, the cost of business in, in, in my opinion.
0: Jamie, North Carolina is the second largest producer of Christmas trees in the country behind only Oregon. Uh, I'm wondering if you'll tell us uh, about where Christmas trees are being grown in North Carolina and why they're so prevalent in these locations.
3: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. We grow Fraser fir. 96% of the Christmas trees in North Carolina are Fraser fir. Fraser fir has that quintessential Christmas smell, the strong branches that help hold up ornaments and soft needles. We are lucky to live in a state that grows the best Fraser fir. We're lucky to have the right growing conditions, the topography, because Fraser fir, it is a native to southeastern the southeastern Appalachian Mountains. They do grow best above 3,000 feet commercially, Fraser Furs, so we have that topography and the weather um, needed for that kind of farming. One little Christmas tree was standing alone
0: That's Jamie Bookwalter, along with Jim Hamilton, both of the NC State Cooperative Extension. And of course, I couldn't talk to them about Christmas trees trees without talking about my own childhood memories. For me, as a Kid growing up, it was dad took pictures. Me and my sister made faces and and mom really like was was almost like the executive producer of of putting ornaments on the tree and wanted to orchestrate things and make sure that uh, everything was perfect. Tell me about a tradition in your uh, in your families, if you would, whether it's cutting down a tree from the mountains and bringing it home or if you're doing hot chocolate with your families uh, in the, the living room. What's something that is just uh, maybe a staple in your home as it pertains to getting the Christmas tree, putting it up or in the weeks where it's just lit up and lingering in your living room?
3: Well, it sounds like you didn't have siblings.
0: <laughs> I, had, I had one. She was four and a half years younger. I could do whatever I wanted to her.
3: Ah, yeah, well, I mean, this Christmas tradition in my household was go to a, a Christmas tree farm and fight over which Christmas tree was best. And I, I mean, I remember being very upset and, you know, like alliances were formed, dissolved. I mean, it was like a game of war. I mean, we, I really went all, we went all in. It was just, it was like... The only thing that mattered, I remembered. was like getting the, the European tree that Union,
0: but this was the Bookwalter Union. Like, there were nations. Uh, well, no, I mean, no. Uh,
3: Dinkins, Dinkins. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm from my, my maiden name's Dinkins. But yeah, I mean, we really, I don't even remember, like, the joyous, I remember it being joyous, but I really remember being like geared up to like fight for my choice. <laughs>
0: Jim, what about you? What do you remember about uh, Christmas trees? And yeah,
3: early- so
4: as as a kid, I grew up in in East Central Alabama. So we would actually go to uh, you know go go into our our woods. We had forested property, and we would cut a red cedar down. And I don't know if you know what a red cedar is, but it's a pretty prickly tree species that you know loses its needles within four to five hours after cutting it down, and and mm-hmm. being in a dry house. So. Uh, but when when we moved up here to, uh, to when I moved to North Carolina over 20 years ago, um, I started doing my doctoral work, you know, brought my wife up to her first farm, and that's what we've done ever since. We, uh, you know, my kids, you know, grew up going out to a farm and picking out a tree and doing the hot chocolate and the hayride. And then after after years of them growing up as the son of the extension director and going to farms year after year, now it's, you know, they're they're older teenagers now, and Christmas time becomes... Yeah, let's let your Dad just go get the tree. It's, it's the the magic is worn off in the tree selection process in the Hamilton household, but they really do enjoy decorating it. That's still a decorating the tree is still a, a big deal, and um, each of us in the family have the ornaments that only we are allowed to put up. Mm-hmm. So there's that.
0: Oh yeah, that's I am very territorial about certain ornaments. Uh, a couple oh, were yes. presents. I have one that I got from the North Carolina Museum of <laughs> History. These are ornaments that I like putting on the tree. I am a stickler for ornament placement. I believe that you have to be cautious <laughs> about how uh, close to the end of a branch you put it. Do, do either of you, and I have another th- you know, comment here, but I don't want to steal too much thunder. Uh, do you have any ornament? Uh, oh, oh, oh well, cust-
4: customer ahead. choice, Jeff. I mean I – mean- you know, some some of the Christmas tree growers are some of the more p- meticulous, picky customers that I know. Like, it would be impossible for me to grow a tree that some of my growers would choose. Whereas, you know, growing up, my mom likes likes trees that you can throw a cat through, mm. you know, big gaps, <laughs> big holes. You know, to, to to be able to hang and strategically place the, those <laughs> ornaments. So what what you might see as a beautiful ideal tree, you know, a, a Christmas tree grower is looking looking at every aspect of the tree, from the length of the leader to uh, you know how tightly the tree was sheared to uh, you know clipping out gaps. It's really it's really fun for me to watch watch a grower walk through sort of the final sort of hand pruning that they do before mm-hmm. they tag the trees to mark them as as premiums or number ones or number twos they're pick they're they're noticing little glitches on a particular tree that I would never see as a as a customer but
0: we have young children and a cat at our house and what I have <laughs> I had to be mindful of in recent years is you can't have anything that is breakable too low cuz the cat might swat at it And when the kids, uh, ours are five and two, help put ornaments on a tree, um, it's wonderful, of course, to have them helping. But you need at times to uh, aid them in picking them up. Otherwise, you'll get a concentration of ornaments in just a very small area right at the bottom, (laughs) uh, which looks really cute, but also really silly. All right. So our tree is up at our house. If you would... uh, Jamie, you can take this one. Tell us a little bit about best practices for just maintaining uh, the tree, giving it its uh, its best path for the the few weeks that it that, that it will be standing.
3: Oh, um, definitely. But first, I just want to let you know that I have a four year old, and he has decided just one branch is the <laughs> best just branch, you. and so all of his ornaments, all of the ornaments, are on one branch, and it's almost <laughs> touching the ground. I
4: love it.
0: I love it. Just <laughs> one branch.
3: Yeah. Just one branch. So, yeah. So, you know, proper tree care isn't isn't hard for, for real trees. You just keep your tree out of the direct sun, water it daily, try not to put it over a heat vent. But Fraser fir are known for having really good needle retention. So you're buying a, you know, Western North Carolina Fraser fir. There's not that much you need to do. Um, you can spray it off with water before you bring it inside to get pollen or other dirt off. But you know, I, I just take mine, just put it directly in the house.
0: There's so much more about Christmas trees and the Christmas tree industry. We'll get back to it with Jamie Bookwalter in Asheville and also Jim Hamilton in Boone, who are both with NC State Cooperative Extension. But first, a Christmas tree grower talks about her crowning achievement. That's right after the break. I'm Jeff Tabiri. You're listening to Do South on WUNC.
1: Christmas tree so let see on Christmas Day.
0: Welcome back to Do South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. For the rows and rows of trees lining this remote farmland in Ash County, only this one tree draws as much attention as it does.
5: This is an 18 and a half foot native fir tree.
0: This 19 year old Frazier fir is headed to a very special place.
5: My name is Amber Scott. I am a co-owner and sales manager at Klein Church Nursery, and we're located in Fleetwood, North Carolina.
0: Amber Scott, along with her brother Alex Church, run their family farm that includes 550 acres of Fraser firs. Amber says they're considered a mid-sized farm and that they have about 60,000 trees. One of those trees earned its spot in the Blue Room on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House this holiday season. Amber told me that she and her brother started entering Christmas tree grower competitions at the state level a few years ago.
5: And we've competed at the national level now for um, a couple years. In fact, for 2022, we were named the reserve grand champion and had the honor of presenting the vice president um, with her Christmas tree for the year. And then this year for 2023, we were um, blessed enough to be named grand champion for this year. And that is how you earn the honor and prestige of being able to present a Christmas tree to the White House.
0: How did they come and get the tree or how did you deliver the tree?
5: On October 9th of this year, and that's traditionally when it happens, is in early October The superintendent of grounds and the chief usher from the White House actually came to our farm, and we toured them around. We already had some trees selected that would meet the specifications for the White House, and they landed on and picked the one. It was an event with fanfare and celebration, and um, we prayed over the tree at that time. And then on November 15th, we cut the tree, and we shipped it off, and um, we actually had a huge party at that time. We had almost 300 people on our farm for that day. We send it off in style.
0: I would imagine this is the the very top or among the very top places where one of your trees could land. Is there anywhere else that you dream of having one of your Christmas trees uh, standing this time of year?
5: Oh, Well, you know, I think if you ask any grower, one thing that puts a smile on our face when we're in the field is looking at any particular tree and knowing that that tree is going to be a centerpiece in someone's home. It's, you know, most likely a stranger, but you're going to be a small part of their celebration. And that we can be a part of, you know, providing a piece of Christmas families all over the country that I don't know that just that part of it is still the most incredible piece so to be featured though at the most recognized house in the nation <laughs> this year that's a yeah that's a real special thing for us
0: that was Amber Scott of Klein Church Nursery in Fleetwood North Carolina Now, back to Boone with Dr. Jim Hamilton, Watauga County Extension Director with the NC State Cooperative Extension. He actually wrote his dissertation on labor dynamics in the Christmas tree industry. We're also heading back to Asheville. That's where Dr. Jamie Bookwalter is. She's a mountain conifer integrated pest management specialist with NC State Cooperative Extension Forestry. They both know a lot about the Christmas tree industry and the farmers who grow the trees.
3: Uh, there's been a trend in the last uh, decade or so on the loss of small family farms. So you're seeing a lot of consolidation. You know, climate change and other factors are making it really hard for small family farms to stay in business. Um, when you are trying to plan for, you know, especially for Christmas trees, I mean, some of your some of your trees are you're not getting payment for those trees, and you know, for 12 years, 14 years out, so. You're having to depend on your experience with the weather. And now that there's so many um, unknowns every year, the weather is more extreme, it's really hard for farmers to to stay in business really. Yeah. you know the, the the margins are really are really low.
0: How heavily... So you are sorry, seeing a
3: consolidation, and in, in, in the you are seeing consolidation. Um, some Christmas tree farms are getting bigger, and the the smaller Christmas tree farmers are, you know, it's. Uh, there used to be a lot more small farms, and now there are, um, there are, yeah, mm-hmm. are less
4: you know, than
3: there was a, a decade ago. Yeah,
4: when I when I started as the uh, Christmas tree extension agent, and, and back then that was my title twenty years twenty little over twenty years ago when I started with extension, we had. Probably anywhere from eighty to one hundred and ten uh, nurserymen and Christmas tree growers in the county. today, the you know the membership in the county uh, association is is down to about to about twenty growers, and that's a function of the of the things that Jamie said about the difficulty of maintaining a, a farm in this day and age. Watauga is a high tourism area, and with that, um, you know I, I joke with folks that we grow more houses than we do uh, trees here mm-hmm. now in the county. As um, as vacation homes have sprouted up, and the cost of land and the cost of doing business has increased for for farmers here in uh, in my specific county, but right. uh, but the ones that that are still growing, you know, they're still you know they're small family farms that uh, either do wholesale and or choose and cut, or they you know they're they're selling their trees on the farm to customers who come from all over the place. Just to you know, capture some of that Christmas magic, going out and creating traditions and memories. You know, out out on the farm. We mm-hmm. still have uh, a number of farms that cater to uh, to that clientele, and and that's that's keeping those farms in business.
0: Jim Hamilton is on the line from Watauga County. Watauga uh, borders uh, Tennessee uh, to the west and uh, Avery County to the north. And just above Avery County is Virginia. So Watauga in the northwest reaches of the state in the high country. I'd love for Either of you, if you can, to just to touch on the agro-tourism side of this in North Carolina.
3: I mean, it's pretty big. I mean, I think agricultural agricultural experiences are um, growing exponentially. Agro-tourism is becoming a bigger and bigger market every year. And I think that's great. I'm a big fan of it. I mean, we are so removed from our food and things that we buy you know it's just so easy to get on amazon and click and then and i mean maybe even that day what you clicked on arrives at your door and that's not agritourism you know agritourism is going out to um, what usually is a family run farm and you know mucking around in a field and talking to people face to face and I mean, talking to the people that actually grew that product and touching the ground and touching the apple or tree or blueberry with your hands, you're facing how hard um, it was to grow that product um, when you're actually out there in the field and and seeing what the the farm is like. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a great way to connect. Today, you know, we don't even leave our house for work, a lot of us. So this is something that we actually have to, you know, go out and. And make connections to do. And I think that's I think that in many on many different levels, you know, social, cultural, environmental, you know, Mm -hmm. this is great. It's a great thing to do.
0: Jamie Bookwalter and Jim Hamilton are here on Due South. They're with NC State Cooperative Extension. They're chatting with us about the Christmas tree industry in North Carolina. I, I would love to hear from you both about the environmental impacts of Christmas trees, thinking about growing them cutting them, transporting them, the the various uh, variables that are related as we think about the carbon footprint uh, with all, I, I guess, from from planting to disposing as it pertains to the Christmas tree. Is this an environmentally friendly activity? Is this something we should uh, be thinking, I don't know, more more thoughtfully about?
3: I mean, Jim is lucky to have a, to have land that he can grow, cut a Christmas tree down in um, but I think we need to, you know, it's, it's agriculture, but we, I, we need to be realistic about what agriculture is. I mean, even with, from, a, from a food standpoint, do you want a, a, an apple that was grown organically in Mexico or do you want an apple that was grown in your county that may not be organic? There's a lot of ways to make uh, conventional farming and local farming more environmentally sustainable, and that's what people work really, really hard to do. I consider myself an environmentalist. My job is to, while keeping farms productive, make it more environmentally sustainable. And we do that by using uh, integrated pest management within um, the, the context of, of a farm management scheme. So this is a integrated pest management, um, or IPM for short. It's a way to connect research, apply it uh in real time and you know we use um natural biocontrols like parasitic wasps cultural practices like using seedlings with improved genetics together with chemical control to, to control pests so it's you know if customers demand 100%, 100% pest free trees uh-huh. just like we want apples without spots right. so you know we we do our best to bring that product to people
4: and and you know, o- over the years, you know pesticide use in the industry has 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 decreased rather uh, rather heavily based on the types of products that were out there mm-hmm. uh, compared to what's you know what's being used today.' they're' they're, they're, they're treated much more infre- frequently than than most of our our food crops. You know I, I get questions a lot and do have to do a lot of of myth busting here because you know uh, farming and the impacts of agriculture sometimes uh, catch the public's eye. And um, NC State's done a lot of research over the years to show, you know, what are the actual impacts to uh, to streams because of this commercial production of of, of Christmas trees over X number of years. Mm-hmm. And you know, frankly, the research shows that there's little to no impact on water sources based on the uh, the way the trees are managed. Mm-hmm. The trees are. Uh, you go into a tree field and you you see deer walking through you know, rabbits, wildlife. There's buffers of growth and um, some of the practices that uh, that Jamie and 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 her crew and the extension crew have been promoting over the years is you know ground cover management. Um, uh, the Christmas tree industry doesn't doesn't spray their weeds like a, a number of our other food crops. So uh, you know there are you know I, while I understand the public's concerns, but Christmas tree production is a is, is a pretty environmentally friendly endeavor, you know, in layman's terms, sure. you know, compared to, to other things.
0: And, and I think Jamie alluded to this earlier, the power of shopping local or growing local, as she referenced apples. But uh, I'm just going to run it back for you. Does getting a tree from North Carolina, which here is, you know, is, is the option or it's, it's the obvious choice. Is it a, a more environmentally sound, lower carbon footprint uh, exercise choice?
3: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, if you're comparing to a fake tree, I mean, that fake tree was made in a factory overseas that probably had no environmental control. I mean, carbon footprint aside, I mean, you can't tell me that these trees that are grown overseas, you know, they're not grown in Europe. (laughs) They're grown in places with no environmental controls. And then they're put on container ships and they're made of oil, you know, they're made of plastic and they're you know, shipped across the world to here and, um, you know, they come to your house and, and then they have a lifespan of a couple years and then they go into, you know, they go into a dump and they'll never decompose. I mean, how long does it take plastic to decompose? It doesn't ever actually decompose. Right. It just becomes smaller and smaller, and smaller plastic particles. So compared to, um, a plastic tree, I mean, I don't, I, there's no comparison in, in my mind in terms of carbon footprint.
0: Jamie Buckwalter and Jim Hamilton are with us on Due South. They are with the NC State Cooperative Extension, and we're working through the, the various facets of uh, the Christmas tree industry here in North Carolina. Our state grows more Christmas trees than any other state in the United States, with the exception of Oregon. We've talked about the economic and environmental impacts or threads of this story, and I don't want to spend a few moments, minutes, perhaps, talking about workers. Uh, Jim, you actually did your dissertation about 20 years ago on labor dynamics in the Christmas tree industry. What was the labor scene
4: like? We're going to start there 20 years ago. Back when the Christmas tree industry started, it, they were small family affairs. I mean, you had you had growers and and, and farm families that would uh, that would go to the top of, you know, uh, Roan Mountain or one of the other native sources of Fraser Fir. They would bring seedlings down to their own properties and and plant those trees out. And for for decades, it was it was just the, the those farmers and their families, you know, trying to grow a crop where others like you know cabbage and, and potatoes had, had failed. And as sort of the 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 affluence in, in in the mountains and the tourism industry increased and more industries were available for those farm families or uh, you know sons and daughters of these farmers to to you know to go out and make a living the labor market sort of shrunk for local labor. Uh, You know, in the research that I did, it it was sort of generally known that the, you know, the first what you would call migrant workers came to the mountains in, uh, in the early eighties and started working on farms. As production of trees increased over the years, the demand for that labor also increased and, and growers were often found, you know, shorthanded when it came to labor. And so for the last, I would say for the last uh, 25 or more years, Producers have relied on the guest worker visa program, the uh, H-2A program for agricultural labor, for probably around eighty percent of the uh, of the industry's mm-hmm. labor. And th- these are these are seasonal workers. Some of them come in on those visas in, in March to really start the season. Oh, wow. That's sort of the late February, early March is the kickoff for sort of the the the, the planting season and fertilizing, and then uh, you transition into shearing season in the summer, and then you know the harvest season. In western North Carolina, usually starts in mid-October, and at, at that time, you'll see farmers and farm crews bolstered by um, other migrant workers who have been working in sweet potatoes or tobacco on the eastern part of the state come to the western part to sort of finish off their, you know, H-two uh, contract for yeah. for the year, and they 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 wrap up their their year of work in Christmas trees and in in the harvest. So, you know we've had um, uh, you know, migrant workers or visa Ah, uh, farm workers here in in western North Carolina since uh, since the 80s. Uh, part of my research was I, I asked uh, d- I did interviews and participant observation with farmers and with farm workers, and I asked workers, uh, uh, you know, what what are they? were what are the most common injuries on the farm? And and uh, you know, the th- three of the things that they said, uh, you know, uh, were were machete. When I say machete, to to shear a Christmas tree, to shear Fraser Fur, they use these very uh, lightweight thin machetes they almost look like uh, elongated uh, butter knives and you walk around the tree swinging the swinging that machete and you're tipping just the, the kind of the newest growth to really give those trees that pyramidal shape and if you if you don't do it the, the, the right way or if you get careless you know and you whack yourself in the knee you know you're gonna you, you're gonna you're gonna cut, cut yourself um but we've also done training with the workers because another thing that they brought up is uh, uh you know uh bees and wasps and I can speak from experience. I was helping a crew shear some, shear some trees one time. And, um, I was in one row and of course I was, I was way slower than, than they were. And I was getting towards the end of my, into my row. And one of the workers came to me and pointed out, "It's like, Hey, don't, don't tip that tree. Well, there was a, there was a football sized hornet's nest uh, sitting in the middle of uh, one tree on the other side, on the side that I would not have seen. And, uh, so you have wasps, um, you know, different people have different allergy levels to, to to poison ivy, but there have been workers taken out of commission because they're pulling uh, poison ivy vines off of a tree, and they 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 just didn't know what it was. And uh, so that's you know part of the part of the farm safety training that I've assisted with over the years is is some some safety training on some of those things. You know, poisonous spiders, the snakes you need to look out for, mm-hmm. you know, plants that can cause a rash or reaction. Um, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Years ago, in 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 White, South America, and and my wife's from Argentina, so I, I speak, I'm a I'm a dude from Alabama who speaks Spanish with an Argentine accent, so that's um I get I get a lot of funny looks when I start giving my my safety spiel's, but um you know I think we we we've, we've done a good good job um, preparing workers for some of the risks that are involved on the farms. Jim, how well are these workers paid, or how
0: poorly are they paid?
4: So the workers in the uh, in the H-2A program are paid what is known as the adverse wage rate, and that is a it's a minimum wage based on the Department of Labor's determination on what is fair and and competitive, and and that is to keep workers from being paid less than the prevailing wage rate. So uh, I believe right now it's it's just under $15 an hour is the adverse wage rate for North Carolina.
0: Jim shared that as part of the H-2A visa program, employers are required to pay for housing, which Jim says is usually basic cabin-like housing that's inspected by the Department of Labor. Jim also shared that North Carolina has one of the highest numbers of H-2A visa workers, around 10,000. And he notes that not all of those visa holders work in the Christmas tree industry. But he says a lot of them come to western North Carolina at the end of the season to work long hours on Christmas tree farms before heading back to their home countries. Thanks to Jim Hamilton and Jamie Bookwalter, both with NC State Cooperative Extension, for joining us on Do South. After the break, Leonida Inge talks with an advocate for migrant farm workers, including migrant Christmas tree farm workers. His connection to these communities is personal and professional. I'm Jeff Tabiri. You're listening to Do South on WUNC.
1: Welcome back to Do South. I'm Leonida Inge. We heard earlier in the show about the labor that goes into growing and harvesting Christmas trees, and in any industry, even highly regulated ones, there are good actors and not. We turn now to the view of Manolo Betancourt, a social activist who is also an entrepreneur and owner of Manolo's Bakery in Charlotte recently featured on PBS North Carolina.
2: As soon as we open the door, oh, you can smell the bread.
1: Manolo's activism includes advocating for immigrant rights and for agricultural workers, including Christmas tree farm workers. Manolo has been delivering bread to these communities for 15 years. Manolo first met a group of Christmas tree farm workers after he immigrated to the U.S. from Colombia.
2: I moved to to America twenty three years ago. When I came to this country I didn't speak any English. I brought nine hundred dollars in my pocket and I just knew the numbers from one to ten. That's it. And I went to college in Tennessee and my last year of college in two thousand four I did Americorp. And I had to take care of all the a lot of farms through Southwest Virginia and Northwest and North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time driving around all these farms, around apple trees, around cabbage, a lot of milk, and Christmas trees. So that's when I learned a lot about the reality of all the Christmas trees farms. I spoke English and Spanish. I had to talk with with the crew leaders, with the families, and uh, many, many times I had to drive pregnant... Immigrant women and people that have been sick or had an accident, I had to take them to a hospitals. I had to take them to take the medicines. I had to teach them how to take care of themselves and teach in the farms and teach in the trailers, you know, about safety issues, about how to work during summertime, uh, pesticide control, and and some ESOL classes too. So
1: through AmeriCorps, you were there really... To um, help workers. Farm workers. Help farm workers, you know, really just stay on top of their health care. And whenever they needed help, you would do it and you would get them to where they needed to be or let them know what they um, needed to just make them feel better. But I guess you wanted to do more by them as well. You know, it started off one way, and then I guess it, it ended another way?
2: <laughs> no, what happened, that was in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, by eight, when I was in uh, college, I did Americorp. Then in 2005, I moved to North Carolina. And I started working at the bakery. 2006, 2007, we opened three more bakeries. In 2008, the recession came and we had to close the other bakeries. And Business keeps going down, 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 down. And everybody was leaving the city and nobody was coming to the bakery. So I, it came to my head all those farms that I knew where they were located and thousands of thousands of immigrants and they didn't know, they didn't have a place to buy bread. So I took the chairs out of my car and I put some boxes of bread. And I started driving back to the farms because I knew the people, and I started delivering bread to them.
1: Oh, you built a new supply chain, a good one, huh? Because it, I know, I know, I, I read that, I guess you started, it started making just a little money at first, but that picked up really fast.
2: Yes. The first day, I sold $40. By the third day, I was selling $400. Um, by one week later, I was selling $4,000. And that is how I saved at the bakery and how we as a family survived the recession. So because a lot of businesses closed by that time.
1: And tell me more about what did you observe about the lives of the workers when you were going to sell sell your bread there and um you know, when why they're here and what their lives were like working on these farms.
2: The first time that I saw something was when I was doing AmeriCorp, And then when I started delivering bread is when I I start noticing, you know, the hardest workers ever Than we have in America are called immigrants. Because these people work from Sunday to Sunday, very early in the morning, very late at night, very cold. It's very, very cold there in the mountains during the Christmas tree season. And then I start learning a lot of more things, and as, as I get to meet, you know, the people, I get to hear the stories and see realities. Like for example, many of them came with with work visa, and they when they came with work visa, they they have a social security, and like any other employee in America, they had to pay Medicare, unemployment, social security, and the list goes on, 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 on. Mm. But they don't know anything about that. Some of them, they don't even know what a social security is. Some of them, they never have seen their numbers or they never have seen their cars. Also, there is a big, big blood traffic of social securities with some of these places. I also have seen, you know, they're supposed to have, you know, a good place to live. And they had to get paid over time. And they also, like, they need to be treated like any other employee in America. And many, many times they don't receive any of those benefits. And, of course, you know, the the fight goes farther when I say a lot of these farms and farmers or landowners, they bring a lot of undocumented immigrants, but it looks like they don't get the same regulations and the law that everybody else has in this nation. As we suffer a lot here and with the previous administration in Charlotte, through we eyes and the policies, you know, the racist and terrorist policies that many of our government bring to us, that doesn't apply to white farmers through the state of North Carolina. And North Carolina is still few of the states that allow kids uh, from 12 years on, sometimes even 10 years old, kids can allow to work. They're allowed to work in the farms. That includes also, you know, the kids are born here in North Carolina and the kids are bring mm-hmm. by immigrant families or are born by immigrants uh, here in the state. Is that for Christmas trees too? No, that was for everybody. Mm-hmm. Remember, North Carolina has 100 counties. I've been around 60 counties. And... The Christmas trees uh, North Carolina is the second state that sells more Christmas trees in the nation. So all those things I had told you goes for you a know, few months. But then we had the cabbage and we have also the peaches, uh, apples, a cotton, we had the pork industry, the cows and the fishing. So there's too many immigrants and farmers employed through the state.
1: Have you seen um, young people during this time of year, or I guess whenever you would harvest the Christmas trees, but actually handling and harvesting these big
2: trees? Yes, mom. I also have seen like many times the people that work in the and the ornament, the decorations. They get paid as for more decoration than they made. They don't get paid by the hour, so sometimes these people wear diapers. So they don't have to go to a restaurant and they don't take time off because as more ornaments than they make, more money than they get paid. So that is, you know, that's a different reality. That's the hypocrisy of the system. You know, here at the cities and we are very well regulated. Sometimes they take a bunch of us and they, but the law, it looks like it's not applied to everybody as equal in this, in this state.
1: Well, I'm speaking to Manolo Betancur, an entrepreneur, a baker and activist, owner of Manolo's Bakery. And he's, in, he's based in Charlotte. And we're talking about the Christmas tree industry in a way, how you've kind of interjected your life into that. Um, and, you know, just you've met a lot of the immigrant workers in the Christmas tree industry, mainly by... Feeding them, selling them your bread, but you've also been able to witness, you know, their lives, and I guess in many ways you'd like, though, their lives to be
2: improved. Totally, totally. Because, no, and don't take me wrong, you know, I'm talking about in a, in a proactive way for people to 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 realize and to know and to learn about these situations, and in order for us to tell our representatives and and to tell up in people in rally that, that okay, there is, we also have a voice. But sometimes we as small businesses or as immigrants or as minorities, we don't have big pockets to send to, to our representatives in rally. but they're forgetting that they work for every single citizen and every single person that lives and works in North Carolina. So we also have a voice and we also have a rights. And we are fighting and we need for the law to be applied to everybody. Look, if you have a small business here and you employ immigrants, is a, there are big, big chances for immigration to come to your business or to pick their employees up at the parking lot like happened in my bakery. And then, meanwhile, we have farmers that employ hundreds and hundreds of immigrants, many of them undocumented, and nobody goes to visit them. So where where the law is applied? Well, to the weak? To the one who doesn't have the big pocket? Oh so why too many people don't want to don't want to 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 do the right thing? So remember the only thing the evil needs to do to win is to do nothing for good people to do nothing.
1: What are some of the conversations you've had, I guess recently with some of the workers um, there.
2: Well, there's always the fear that we also, always we are carrying fear. There's always fear that my bakery is going to become a target, like happened before. There's always fear that uh, some of these people are going to lose their jobs. There's a big fear with the crew leaders because, I tell you a story, 25 years ago, uh, uh, a Mexican with an American, they... They plant 250 Christmas trees somewhere in North Carolina in a big farm. 25 years later, the owner of the land with his sons, they are rich. They are millionaires. They own a lot, a lot of land. They own a lot of houses in this town. And, and the crew leader, the other guy, the Mexican guy who planted those trees, he doesn't even own a house. So this guy, he charged rent to the people that, can, that he employs. And many times the law says that he has to provide the house if he's bringing mm-hmm. guest workers from another country. So because people don't know the laws, and many of these employees don't know the laws here in America, so they're just quiet, and any dollar is, represents a lot of money. So we're in Latin America. So they they're okay with that, but they they are they don't know that they than a farmer or a landowner like has happened before in the history of America is abusing of them is another kind of slavery.
1: Mm. So what what keeps you going though, because I I hear you, there've been raids at your business, you know, and how does this relate to definitely um, the the Christmas tree industry and the people where you visit and. Support. You know, you supply your your bread, too. Have you had to change what you
2: do in any way in the past few years? Yeah, a few years ago, I show up at work at the bakery, and I saw my team crying, you what happened? And I say, you know, six undercover edges for I speak, one of our co-workers at the parking lot. They were calling him Richard, and his name was Matthews. And I said, gosh, man, this went f- so way farther than I thought. And so I had to, it was a, it was tough for me to to see, you know, my team crying. The fear of my team, the fear of my customers because nobody was showing up at the bakery. Everybody was in social media. Isis and Manolos, Isis and Manolos, don't go there mm-hmm. because Isis are on there. And my own fear, because if I don't have customers and I don't have employees, I don't have a business. So that has been the only time in my life that I really thought maybe I need to shut my mouth more or maybe shut my business. And then I also said to myself, man, it's too late. And... It's too and,
1: late to shut your mouth now. Yeah, it's
2: too late, and I'm not going to do that to my kids. I really want for to leave a legacy to my kids and to the immigrants' kids and to anyone in America who really wants to fight for freedom and, and rights. So I just opened my—that day I opened my mouth harder, and I wrote a post. And I said, if you care about small businesses owned by immigrants, please show up to a bakery because look at my parking lot and look at my bakery full of bread. If you don't care, that's fine too. I will move my bakery to a more friendly place, and that has been the biggest demonstration of love that I ever had in my bakery and pretty much in my life. People from Raleigh, from Winston-Salem, from Durham, from from Waxo, from all places at the city show up at the bakery. I had I had never seen that many Americans in my bakery. Really and didn't know anything about tamales, and they say I want 20 tamales, another one. There's no burgers in my house, but I want a cake. <laughs> so that's why it make me stay here in North Carolina. That's why it made me stay here in Charlotte.
1: Yeah, that's why you keep doing what you do and uh, making bread, delivering it, and selling it to the, the communities where Christmas tree workers and other immigrant workers are because, um, I guess, you were shown love now, and you know you're doing what you need to do you know, just to remain positive and to keep people as safe and to educate them, right?
2: Absolutely. Remember, these people support me when when we were very close to, very near to close our business in 2008. So many of them became my friends and many of them became like family. So when there is a quinceañera away and I, I drive there and I deliver the cake and when when somebody dies and they are delivering bread too, because we have bread and and, and celebrations. Remember, the Bible talks about bread, doesn't talk about beans. So the bread of God, bread is love and bread is life.
1: Well thank you so much, Manolo Bayton Cure, for being on Due South. Uh, Manolo's Bakery. You founded that. You own that. You're an entrepreneur, a baker, an activist. And I'm sure the folks in those communities in the western part of our state where you deliver your bread to Christmas tree workers are appreciative. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for having me here. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, to share this other reality. Our Christmas trees are, look so beautiful. When they're in our houses, but remember the families and the people who, who are taking care of those streets, they also are people like us.
1: I'm Leonida Inge. You've been listening to Do South on WUNC.